For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in the newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. Today, we are joined by Ricky Robertson, co-author of Building Resilience in Students Impacted by Adverse Childhood Experiences, a Whole Staff Approach. Ricky works with schools and districts across the country to improve both student behavior and academic achievement through the implementation of multi-tiered interventions, restorative practices, and trauma-informed behavioral interventions and supports. This work includes coaching to enhance multi-tiered systems of support by examining data, setting goals, identifying barriers, leveraging resources, monitoring progress, and working to sustain growth. Our discussion includes the importance of educator self-care and the importance of seeing student behavior as communication. It's a must-listen episode as we work to ensure we're meeting the needs of all our students. Well, I am so honored today to be joined by Ricky Robertson. Ricky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Susan. It's an honor to be here virtually with you. (laughs) Yes, virtually, for sure. Luckily, our listeners don't know this, but I can actually see you because we're recording video too. So at least we can um, sort of have a conversation (laughs) instead of just being audio. Um, Before we get started, we really just love to hear about your your journey. How did you end up making it to to this work that we're going to talk about in in a little bit? What did that journey look like for you? Sure. I mean, it was the journey. The work I do now is is primarily with schools and districts around the U.S. in supporting them to develop trauma-informed social, emotional, and behavioral supports for students and also for staff. And, and really also thinking about how we develop, you know, wraparound supports for families as well. And the journey to that work for me was both personal and professional. Um, professionally, I started as a New York City public high school teacher and had the good fortune to teach in one of New York City's highest performing high poverty public high schools. And then went on to teach in alternative middle school and high school settings for students who had previously been expelled or pushed out of school or had been incarcerated and were re-engaging in their learning journey um, and taught in those alternative settings for a while and then eventually uh, went back to grad school and, and kind of took on a more uh, ad- administrative and district level position as a behavior specialist, supporting schools pre-K to 12th grade in developing social, emotional, and behavioral supports. And so I would say 
professionally, kind of the common thread throughout the work that I was doing was that so many of the young people that I worked with had exposure to a significant number of adverse childhood experiences and forms of trauma, especially many of the young people that I was working with later on in my career as it started to focus more and more on students who were struggling behaviorally or socially, emotionally in school. And so trauma kind of became this this common thread. But personally, I think what drew me to the work is really my own healing journey. Um, I was a, a, a kid who grew up as a as a, a young queer kid in, in Central Florida during a time when um, being gay or, or LGBTQ plus was was um, I mean it's hostile now, but it was even harder then. Um, and experienced a lot of bullying, a lot of homophobia growing up, and lived in a, a single parent household where. We, I think, some years brought in as a household income maybe less than twelve grand a year, so pretty, pretty significantly below the poverty line. Um, and I was a kid who grew up in a family where there was a lot of love, but not a lot of structure. And so, from very early on, um, in some ways, I was taught that that family and, and caring for each other comes first, but that also meant that school came second. So I was actually. Uh, truant or chronically absent um, from about second grade until 12th grade. In fact, I graduated just in high school. I had 180 absences and over 300 lates. So I I hardly, I don't think I ever Mm. went to a full day of high school. Um, And so, you know, it took me quite a while as a young adult to find my footing and to be able to get through college was took everything, took my mom's support. (laughs) Can't even tell you how many times I dropped out. (laughs) Um, And then teaching Mm -hmm. was really a saving grace for me. I started teaching and I I had to be there for my students in ways that um, challenged me to grow up really quickly. And I was I was good at what I did. I got a lot of positive acknowledgement and built a lot of, of good relationships with my students and they were making considerable progress academically. And, um, I was a high-performing teacher, but my personal life was was a disaster. <laughs> um, the the generations mm-hmm. of alcoholism in my family, of addiction, of abuse that hadn't been spoken about, those things were showing up in my life as an adult. So I was I was work was the place where I was highly effective, and in my personal life, I was struggling with addiction and uh, you know kind of really codependent and even abusive relationships at times, and um, and really struggling. And so I think for me, kind of hitting rock bottom, finding my way into 12-step recovery, into adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families, beginning my own healing journey, kind of perfectly matched with this professional journey I was on. And so the work that I do now comes from my heart and soul. There's nothing that I, especially when it comes to supporting educators and their well-being, there's nothing that I talk about that I haven't myself tried or put into practice or had to learn the hard way. Um, So I really do this work not as like us helping them, you know, whether the them is students who've experienced trauma or or kids living in poverty. I really do it as as really an... um, of my own journey from like hurting to healing to helping. Right. And so seeing myself very much Mm -hmm. with and among the people that I work with and and also among the young people that I advocate for, because I was very much one of those kids who was high in terms of ACEs and, and 
kind of needing a lot of, of support um, growing up that I may or may not have gotten at different points. Wow. What a, what a beautiful and vulnerable story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, but really to ground us in this understanding that not only, you know, I like what you said about it's not, it's not us versus them. Not only did you experience this as a, as a child and, and a student, but also as an adult and as a teacher. So you can really sort of see um, all sides of the perspective here. Yeah, I try to. Um, and then I continually learn, I think, that <laughs> as the journey goes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into these adverse childhood experiences in a minute. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, about the book that you co-authored. But before we jump in, when we were doing our pre-call, something you said just felt really important at this particular moment. It's also you know, part of what you include in your book. And, and that's just this idea of the importance of educator well-being. I mean, we've been through, you know, teachers in classrooms have been through a horrible last 18 months of uncertainty and responding in ways that they're never had to respond to before, even coming back to the classroom, maybe this fall continued uncertainty. And I would even say we're still in some, you know, areas of uncertainty. Um, why is it so important to you to actually talk about this idea of, of educator well-being? I think educator well-being is is essential to how effectively we can support our students. And also in education, we are so often told what to do and rarely asked what we need as educators. Mm -hmm. And I think that by addressing the needs of educators first, then we're able to better support our educators mm -hmm. in supporting mm -hmm. students. Student outcomes don't change mm -hmm. unless adult mindsets and behaviors change. And I truly believe it is so much easier for us to grow as educators when we feel connected, supported, valued, and inspired by our impact in our workplace and in the work that we do. And so, you know, to... to you kind of mentioned we've been through this time of collective trauma the past year and a half, and many educators started this school year feeling the level of fatigue and burnout that they might typically feel in May or June of a school year, but they started this year feeling that way for many educators because we haven't had a break. It has just been one challenge after another in the past year and a half, and the more we've cared about our students, I think the harder this job becomes, you know, and, and we become more vulnerable to compassion fatigue, that exhaustion from caring, and more vulnerable to burnout. And I think something that I try to emphasize is that burnout is never a personal failure. It is a systemic one. We, we work in a system right now that you know, fortunately, we're having a lot of federal funding come through, but we have a huge staffing shortage. We have a lot of mixed messages in terms of pressure to both attend to the social emotional needs of our students and worry about test scores and, and our pacing calendars. And we can feel pulled in these contradictory directions. And so we have to look at how to care for the educator. I think it's essential both. Um, and I think it's an ethical obligation as well. And I would say that the only thing where I mm -hmm. differ from a lot of my colleagues in terms of trauma-informed care is that there is, I do emphasize self-care and self-care is essential. Um, but in a lot of folks in trauma-informed practices, self-care is a big kind of buzzword, but self-care is not enough 
And we have to be talking about school-wide and district-wide and systemic practices that support educator well-being, retention, recruitment, and efficacy. Uh, and I, I think we see that right now in so many ways showing up in our field. Yeah. Yeah. I know you talk a little bit about the differences uh, between self-care and self-improvement. And that resonated with me too, because I remember, I don't know, a few months into the pandemic, it's like, wow, what an opportunity, wonderful opportunity for us to sort of buckle down and learn a little bit more um, about maybe what our students need. And there was this real push from a I mean, from us two on the podcast, we wanted to provide people more information about how to, you know, how kids learn how to read. Um, and so sometimes I think educators or even principals or district leadership, sort of self-improvement is a different thing from self, self-care. Can you talk a, a bit about that distinction? Sure. I mean, I, I get to work with educators ac- around the country. And, and what I often hear is like, you know, I would practice self-care if I had the time, but many educators might yeah. be teachers or administrators or paraprofessionals or, you know, school-based counselors or social workers. And our, our, our schedule when we're at work is packed. It often flows over into our personal life. We have to work from home and on the weekends. And many of us are also parents or caregivers for our own parents or, you know, uh, have partners or have many other, uh, you know, obligations in our lives that compete for our time and energy. And so sometimes we can be left feeling like we're failing at self-care, like self-care is one more thing that gets put on Mm -hmm. my plate. And now I'm even failing at that. And that isn't self-care, it's self-criticism. And and so when I I talk with people about self-care, one of the many kind of things that I, I invite folks to focus on are simple things they can do to support their well-being, even on their toughest day. Simple things they can do during the workday. Take your lunch, talk to a colleague who makes you laugh, step outside, go for a walk if you can, pray, take a mindful minute to meditate, watch cat videos on TikTok. I don't care what it is that supports your physical or emotional well-being in some positive ways. Rest, take a nap. I think rest is one of the most important and underrated uh, forms of self-care. And so I talk about the fact that self-care is not self-improvement because sometimes when we get in the self-care mindset, we start to think, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself, is I'll go okay, my schedule tomorrow is packed. I'll get up at 4 a.m. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to exercise for half an hour. I, I might as well stop eating sugar, you know, and I make this this self-care plan that's almost <laughs> impossible for me to keep up with. Right. And then it, and then I start to criticize myself after a few days or weeks when, when it kind of goes from all to nothing. And so really inviting folks to realize that self-care is more about an orientation of kindness towards the self What can I do to alleviate my own suffering? And then in turn, as I care for myself, how can I best help to alleviate the suffering of others? And so sometimes I think it might be better, for example, to take the nap when you need it and you haven't gotten enough rest than to push yourself to, you know, uh, go to the gym or to, to, or to try to, to move towards a more perfectionistic ideal of yourself, which isn't to say personal growth and exercise and these things aren't important, but is there a way we can be both um, gentle and also supportive of our own well-being? 
Hmm. That's, that's beautiful and lovely. And, and I, um, I love that that's included in the book. Um, we're going to talk about in a minute, um, because, you know, it reminds me, uh, you, you know, you can't give what you don't have, right. I, I can't remember how that old saying goes, but it's certainly a reminder that we need to be kind to ourselves and fill up our cup before we share that with others. Um, so we've been talking about this book, I have it in front of me right now. It's called Building Resilience in Students Impacted by Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, and you're a co-author with this book. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the genesis? Why did you decide to write it? Um, it is just packed full of great information, by the way. And for our listeners, we'll link them in the show notes uh, where they can, they, they can buy this. But talk about like how this book came to be. Sure. Um... Well, I have two fantastic co-authors, Victoria Romero, who is a retired principal of two turnaround schools in Seattle, and prior to that was a classroom teacher for 35 years, and Amber Warner, who's a licensed clinical social worker who works in schools, in hospitals, and in private practice with children and families impacted by trauma. And she actually works in one of the areas of California that has some of the highest rates of adverse childhood experiences and trauma in our state and even comparatively much higher rates than in many parts of the country. And so um, the book came about actually through a relationship I developed with my co-author, Victoria. And Victoria was passionate about wanting to write a book about adverse childhood experiences, especially from the, the perspective of an administrator and a principal. And I was able to contribute my background as a teacher and behavior specialist. And then Amber was kind of the perfect fit, bringing in this perspective from a mental health clinician. So the book really um, is a, first of all, I think one of the things that's important for folks to realize is the book is truly a workbook. It's a book where educators are invited to read and reflect and then take what they learn and apply it to practice. So there's a lot of different strategies and, and even things that can be thought of both within the classroom, but also systemically. We have schools that have used the book as a way to, to do book studies with their staff and, and have come back to us and shared the ways that it's transformed a lot of their behavioral and social emotional outcomes for their students and also help their staff to feel much more valued because our second chapter focuses mm -hmm. solely on the educator and we wanted to put that up front. Um, and so the, the book really, I think... I think there were a couple desires there. One was that it would be a workbook, something very practical and useful that could that could give educators strategies because a lot of times with trauma-informed care, we talk about what and why, but not the how. And we also, at the time, wanted to have some important conversations that were being left out of some of the larger conversations around trauma. Um, you know, in terms of looking at the relationship between equity and trauma-informed practices, and that we can't call ourselves trauma-informed unless we're doing work to be racially and socially just. And we also wanted to explore trauma-informed practices through an RTI or MTSS framework, um, really looking at mm -hmm. multi-tiered social, emotional, and behavioral supports so that we could think more systemically. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. I'd love if you could speak a little bit more to what you mean by that and why it's really critical and important to, to understand both what they are and how they may impact students and teachers in the classroom. Absolutely. So adverse childhood experiences or ACEs refer to experiences of chronic and acute stress that occur in a young person's life up until the age of 18. And these can be things like 
uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, death of a parent, incarceration of a parent or caregiver, someone in the household suffering from a mental illness or struggling with substance abuse issues, abandonment due to separation or divorce. And what we know from research around ACEs and trauma are a number of things. One is that they can have a considerable impact on our long-term health. We find some studies that show that for every adverse childhood experience that occurs, it increases our likelihood for developing a physical, um, mental, or behavioral health impairment later in life. In fact, the original ACE study conducted in 1997 by Robert Onda and Vincent Felitti showed that once an individual had about four ACEs, they were twice as likely to develop cancer later in life compared to someone who had none. So ACEs and trauma can have an effect on our long-term health and well-being, but it also has an effect on the immediate cognitive, behavioral, and social, emotional, and even neurological development of young people. We have a huge body of research that looks at the ways that the trauma and ACEs can impact the brain development of the young people sitting in our classrooms and can cause a young person to be in a persistent state of fight, flight, or freeze. Those fight behaviors that could look like disrespect or defiance or aggression, or those flight or freeze behaviors that could look like running out of the classroom or shutting down or refusing to do work or or feeling overwhelmed by anxiety. And I would also offer there can be what are called by some fawn behaviors, um, which are young people that the way they've learned to survive trauma is to people please, to be a caretaker, to be highly perfectionistic. Mm. And I think many of those young people can very easily fall through the cracks because our attention as educators can get drawn to the students that are more visibly suffering in our classroom, whether it's through their behavior or we see them shutting down or they talk to us about the anxiety or depression they're experiencing. And sometimes we can lose sight of those students that are more internalizing and that might suffer in silence and can actually be very compliant in the classroom. Um, yeah, I think, and, I, and you know, I could go in greater depth, you know, in talking about the, the toxic stress response in the body and what this does hormonally and what it does neurologically. But I think one of the things that, that I do want to focus on or mention is that it's critical to understand that ACEs and trauma are prevalent across humanity. They're prevalent across race, socioeconomic class, uh, geographic region, whether you live in a rural, urban, or suburban community. They are prevalent across sexual orientation and gender. So realizing ACEs and trauma are prevalent across humanity, but resilience is our birthright. We each have an innate capacity for resilience. And so our past is not our destiny. And thankfully, in addition to research on adverse childhood experiences and trauma, we also have a whole body of research on protective factors, on things that nurture that innate capacity for resilience. Things like supportive relationships, having safe enough environments where we feel a sense of belonging and feeling valued, young people having role models or things that inspire them, whether it's literature or music or dance or sports or arts or crafts or hobbies or ways of expressing themselves that create a sense of hope and possibility. And so we begin to understand that there are so many other factors that help to nurture that innate capacity for resilience. 
and that resilience is more than just grit. It is more than just pushing through. Healthy resilience is relationally connected. It is emotionally intelligent. It is a young person that feels a sense of belonging. It develops problem-solving skills, has a positive sense of self, and has a sense of hope and purpose and possibility. Hmm. And so when you work with educators in the classroom, and I'm thinking about this right now from the hat of a third grade teacher, which is mostly what I taught when I was in the classroom, is understanding these ACEs or adverse childhood experiences and understanding that we can help kids develop resilience. What does that look like today when I'm teaching my reading lesson? Well, Again, first, there's the conversation of how we we first care for the self, right? So initially, I would talk to you about what are some of those ways, especially even during work, that you can find to relieve stress in healthy ways. Because we actually have a lot of research that shows that when educators are dysregulated, they can't teach dysregulated students. No learning will take Mm -hmm. place. Mm -hmm. So by first helping the educator to manage stress in healthy ways, they can better support their students to co-regulate. And Dr. Bruce Perry talks about Mm -hmm. this quite a bit, Dr. Stuart Shanker, um, Dr. Dan Siegel. We have a lot of great folks who have talked about this in their work and their research. Then we would look at, you know, I always start with my foundation in the classroom. I look for routines and consistency. I look for having clear expectations and kind of structure throughout the day. Consistency is like a nutrient for kids who've experienced a lot of chaos or trauma, especially in the past year and a half with the pandemic. So, and by saying that it's like a nutrient, that means it can be like a vegetable. They can, it can be like eating their broccoli. They might hate it, but they need it. Mm. I also look for ways that yeah. the educator responds to challenging behaviors. Do we respond in ways that are connected and firm? Do we, as Jane Nelson says, cor- connect before we correct behavior? I can tell you're upset, but Mm -hmm. we don't throw things in here. Please pick that up. Or it's wonderful to see you. What's our rule about cell phones? Thank you for putting that away. So I connect before I correct behavior. So I'm looking for routines and structure and consistency. Then I'm also looking for the ways that we create opportunities to build relationships, whether it's classroom circles, morning meetings, um, doing a two by 10, a two minute conversation for 10 consecutive days with a student you might be really struggling with or to build a relationship with. So I'm looking for relationships both with the teacher to student and student to student and how we kind of build in those opportunities, whether it's paired work or small group work or class circles or what this might look like. And then I'm also looking for regulation activities, mindfulness breaks, movement breaks. If we have complex assignments, breaking it down into manageable step-by-step pieces and components. Because those are kind of the three ways kind of regulation usually shows up for me, mindfulness, movement, and making things manageable. That might also mean things like having a peace corner or a calming corner in the classroom. In the book on page 89 and 90, we have a Talk, Trust, Feel repair toolkit with about 40 different strategies. And it's really meant because Dr. Claudia Black back in the 80s said that when young people grow up in families impacted by abuse or neglect or addiction, they often learn three unspoken rules. Don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. 
And so decades later, mm. we look at research on kids impacted by trauma, and they often struggle with communication, building and maintaining healthy relationships, physical and emotional regulation, and realizing also that trust is often built in moments of conflict. I know I can trust you based on how you handle me on my worst day and not my best. So my foundation is always routines, relationships, and regulation. And then we can build from there. And, and there's even interesting ways we can think about about teaching, reading, and literacy in ways that foster resilience. Because for some kids, reading in and of itself is a regulating activity. For some students, reading is calming. For others, it's the opposite. Yeah. They struggle. And so how do we create that growth mm -hmm. mindset feedback? How do we build in those regulation breaks? How do we kind of chunk the, the heavy lifting that we're doing as we're learning literacy and reading? How do we also uphold examples, maybe of famous people who at one point struggled with reading and are now maybe famous or well-known in their field so students can have a sense of possibility. Are, are reading materials culturally responsive so students see people like them positively reflected in what they're reading? That fosters that sense of hope and possibility that's essential for resilience. So there's a, a lot of different ways and, and we can even go further. There was an interesting graduate student study about looking at how by building a strong relationship with a text or a character in a story, that becomes its own kind of protective factor for some young people. And mm. I, I, you know, for me as a kid, I survived some of the harder parts of my childhood by escaping into books. And so I can certainly attest that there are certain books or characters you know, that made a meaningful impact on my life. And I, I owe that obviously to a lot to my grandmother who always used to say to me, if you have a book, you're never alone. And to this day, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> books have been some of my most, most meaningful companions. And so we have some research that even shows that there's a form of, of attachment that can occur between a reader and a story or a book that can actually be uh, a safe space, a refuge. And that can, again, foster resilience. That's great. And, and I remember we were talking in our, our pre-call um, and I said to you, I'm, I might want to be a little bit of a devil's advocate to say, all right, like a, a teacher only has so much time. And especially we've talked on this podcast, the importance of teaching kids how to read early and how that instruction is so, so important. Um, you talk a lot about this doesn't have to be an either or proposition. You can be very focused on learning while still having that kind of environment to, to support students. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, my hope and my dream in the work that I do, and there are times even when I'm doing trainings where I will ask, uh, you know, if I'm working with a school, I'll ask all of the teachers to bring a lesson plan to one of to like our next workshop together. And I don't mm -hmm. care if they teach kindergarten or 12th grade physics. We're going to look at that lesson plan through a social emotional lens. And we're going to ask ourselves, what is a social emotional skill my students will need to be successful in this lesson? Maybe they're going to participate in a small group discussion. Maybe they have to self-regulate and manage some anxiety around the work that they're doing. Maybe they're struggling with reading. And so we've got to think about that growth mindset feedback and helping them to persevere. 
and really thinking about, you know, or, or maybe I want them to develop self-awareness. So I want to ask them how what we're reading relates to them, their experiences, their identities, their beliefs, their story. Or maybe I want to help them to develop some empathy or relationship skills. And we can teach empathy through literacy just by asking a student, what do you think that character is thinking or feeling in that moment? Because empathy is an imaginative act. It's an act of creativity. Can I put myself in that other person's shoes and really start to see how it connects to my own experience? And so we can build that bridge by saying, okay, what do you think that character is thinking or feeling in that moment? Which also strengthens comprehension because more advanced readers are better able to read not just the, the physical action of the story, so to speak, but what's implied or what might be the interior life of the characters. So, so when we're, we're sitting down to lesson plan, asking ourselves, okay, what is the social emotional skill my students may need to be successful in this lesson? And then can I create some type of learning intention or success criteria so that I, my students can understand what skill they're developing, how to know if they've developed it, and are there any supports that I could provide my students in this lesson to support their social, emotional, and behavioral engagement in the learning? And so that might look like, you know, a, a note-taking guide so that students who struggle with focusing can, if they're participating in a small group discussion about a text, write down what other folks have said and take notes and write down what they're thinking. Or it could involve... Um, you know, uh, uh, let's say we're we're um, we're doing an activity where I'm handing back an assignment, and I, I you know, there's a, a wonderful strategy I've seen where rather than putting the grade on the page, uh, th there's a great YouTube video of a teacher who highlights the mistakes, and then students problem solve together to kind of learn through. And, and figure out where the mistake mm. was made. And that's this beautiful mm. way of students developing that growth mindset when looking at an assessment rather than just going right to their grade, but instead looking at where was my mistake? Why did I make it? These are ways that we start to build some of those skills, but we embed them within our instruction. Um, and that takes some time and practice, but I, that's where I hope we start to get to as a field where we start to plan for the social, emotional, and behavioral needs of our students in learning, rather than just reacting or responding. Hmm. Hmm. And that sounds a little bit, um, sounds a little bit about holding high expectations too, and the beliefs that a teacher brings that if I just provide the right kind of whether it's academic scaffolding or whatever scaffolding the student needs, I have this belief that kids uh, will uh, both, you know, get the get to the goal and and feel good about getting to the goal. So how, I know you talk a little bit about this in your book too, how this squares with that concept of high expectations. Yeah, being trauma informed is not about being permissive. It's not about lowering expectations. It's how do I respond to the needs of my students in ways that are connected and firm? How do I maintain high expectations and also provide high levels of support? And so mm. I do think that mindset that the teacher brings has a great deal to do with how they're going to view their students and especially their students' behavior. One of the things we talk about that Victoria and Amber and I talk about quite a bit in the book is that behavior is a form of communication. And so are we willing to look at the behaviors we see in our classroom and consider what might be 
ways to address the needs underneath that behavior, needs for safety, belonging, feeling valued, ways to strengthen that relationship, ways to kind of, a lot of times there's a common, you know, metaphor or analogy that behavior is is the tip of the iceberg. But I really think it's just one of the earliest ways we've learned to communicate. We, you know, before we even have language, mm-hmm. as even as little babies, right, we communicate through our behavior. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that stays with us, you know, throughout our lives, as far as I'm concerned. I don't think that ever leaves us. I think there's so many ways that we communicate our needs and our emotions and even our beliefs through our behavior. And so part of that also is the educator mindset. Am I willing to view student behavior as a form of communication? And am I willing kind of by whatever means necessary to provide support for my students, to hold them to high expectations and to nurture that innate capacity for resilience and possibility within each of them. Hmm. So this is probably going to be a little out of the blue. So sorry if I'm doing this to you, but it made me wonder, um, I was just sort of envisioning a classroom and and teachers and kids in there. If you have a, a, a great memory or story from either a student or a teacher that you have seen, like really truly be impacted or affected when the approach, uh, when this approach has been modified in, you know, in terms of, you know, recognizing the behavior as a form of communication. Certainly. Um, I mean, I have a lot of examples. Some are even larger than just individuals. So a lot of times I've even worked with elementary schools where once we've implemented four regulation activities, whether that's mindfulness or movement activities throughout the school day, we'll see a 10% decrease in their overall number of referrals. And that's just building wide, being willing to look at just building wide, right? Like behavior as a form of communication, Mm -hmm. that our students are struggling with that capacity to self-regulate. So let's make this one of our building-wide essential practices. I also have great stories of schools that have really taken on, whether it's elementary, middle, or high school, class circles and morning meetings, whether it's in an advisory or homeroom or a way to start the day, and ways that when done consistently and ways that are done in ways that are relevant for students, we see a, a transformation and shift with the school culture. And on the individual level, I mean, I've been doing this work for years. And so thinking about the the different stories, um, I mean, I think... I did put you on the spot a little no, bit. No, 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 I know. I'm just trying to think. There's so many examples. Some are very small, right? So like I had a teacher who came to a workshop yeah. and and we were talking about talk, trust, feel, repair. And we we're talking about, you know, doing a two by 10 strategy. And so she sent me an email and she said, I have a student in my classroom. Um, you know, he, he really difficult behavior, won't talk to me, will a, a, a 10 second by 10 day conversation work because she would sit down to talk with him and he would turn his back to her. She couldn't even get it out a couple words. And he was in like second grade. Mm -hmm. And so she kept at it. And then finally on day eight or nine, there was a shift and 
they had their first real conversation because she just kind of consistently showed up. And then she sends me this picture at the, you know, a month or two later, and he's got this poster and this big smile on his face. He's done his first big assignment for the class. We've seen this huge shift. Oh, wow. So that's like a simple example. Sometimes there's work where it's, it's more intensive and we have to look at a tier three kind of behavior plan for a student. We have to look at wraparound supports. And it really is a journey of progress, not perfection. It's not this like night and day shift. It's often two steps forward, mm-hmm. one step back. We see improvements and then we see maybe the students re-traumatize, something happens there in their personal life. We see them kind of regress in their behavior and then we, and then they start to make progress again. And, and it's important for educators to keep in mind that, that none of that work is wasted. And, and especially, you know, I was a couple of weeks ago, I was yeah. working with an alternative high school and they said, you know, sometimes our heart will get broken because we'll be seeing all this progress. And the next thing you know, a student doesn't show up at school the next day and we find out that they got arrested. And I said, you know, keep in mind that mm-hmm. all of that work you invested did not go away. In fact, I was deeply moved. About six months ago, I had a, a teacher at a school I used to teach at as a high school teacher. And she contacted me and said... Um, I have a student who wants to to call you. He called the school and he asked if he could get in touch with you. And this was a young man who I hadn't taught in about 10 years. And I remembered him uh, because he, I taught, I was a math teacher and he um, was very into graffiti. Uh, he wanted to tag every subway car in New York City. He was not very interested in school or math. Um, and so I tried to find any way necessary to build that bridge. I even remember taking us on a trip to go meet with some graffiti artists that were doing mural projects and just try to channel his artistic ability into something um, positive that he could build on, but then also find a way to connect with him, to engage him in the learning. And he, in his senior year of high school, had a had a, a challenging year and, and uh, shortly after graduation um, ended up I didn't know this ended up being incarcerated. And, and so he reached out to me six months ago, first time I've heard from him in 10 years. And he tells me, you know, after, after high school, I messed up, I got involved in a lot of drugs, I ended up in jail. But um, while I was in jail, these were the things I thought about. And then he proceeded to share with me all of these things that I had said to him back when he was a 10th, 11th grade kid in my my geometry and trigonometry classes. He even said that quote from my grandmother of like, he's even like, you know, I even learned and to love to read while I was in jail because you had said anytime you have a book, you're not alone. And now he's managing, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a restaurant that he works in. He's, he's sober. He's completely turned his life around. But had he not called, I never would have known any of that. And I would have been left with yeah. a memory of thinking all of that work, all of that investing in that relationship, in that work together, maybe was for naught. Maybe, you know, maybe it didn't result in anything. Because when he graduated high school, I was certainly afraid about the direction he was heading. And so you never know. Mm-hmm. Also, I think sometimes you don't see the right. fruits of your labor in the moment. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. It speaks to what you were talking at the beginning of this episode about the idea of consistency, though, right? The importance of consistency. Sometimes that consistency is for eight or 10 days. Sometimes that consistency is for years. Yep. But how much they, they really need that consistency. Those are, those are great stories. Thanks for letting me put you on the spot on that one. We didn't 
Uh, we didn't pre-plan that at all. Sure, no, um, but like once we get off the, been... the call, I'll probably think of a dozen better ones and then I'll be like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be like, why didn't I say that? What did I, you know, but I got to stop my own inner uh, critic, let me tell you. <laughs> that, that's for sure. Um, well, this has been this has been amazing, and again, your book, you know, kudos to the the three of you. Your book really does feel like a, uh, I wouldn't say workbook because I think sometimes workbook has bad connotation with it, but for sure, uh, a book to an engage and explore and try strategies out, um, and really very very informative. Um, and so, as we sort of come full circle here and close up. I wonder if you have any words or advice or takeaways for our listeners that are just really kind of on your heart and mind. Just the amount of pain that I see on a day-to-day basis when I work with so many educators and the incredible heart and commitment and hard work. I am humbled and honored to be an educator the past year and a half has tested us in so many ways. And so I think mm-hmm. if there's any thing that I would offer, it would be an invitation for folks to give themselves some grace, to recognize that it's okay to show up and be the good enough teacher, the good enough educator, that we're going to be, that the, the coming out of this pandemic is a marathon, not a sprint. And so we're, the work is really going to be a journey of progress and not perfection and to take good care of yourselves along the way. Mm, that's very wise. And I mean, I'm just going to say too to our educators, to all the practitioners that are working with students, whether it's in the classroom, at the building level, at the district level, folks like you that come in and support, it's just, it has been it has been a hard year and and we work hard in the best of times to ensure students get what they need. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for your wise words and listeners. I hope you click on that link um, and get this book in your own hands. Thank you so much for listening and keep your feedback coming. Want to learn more? Be sure to stay connected by subscribing to your favorite podcast app and join our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. And visit Amplify.com to check out our brand new resource site, offering all the tools and tips you need to continue on your science of reading journey. Until next time, keep the hope, take the action, and stay in touch. Let's get our kids to love reading.